millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Action. When I first started, I felt like directors were going to give me some sort of magic key, mm-hmm. and I was waiting for them to like unlock something inside of me. And they're actually looking at you, thinking like, "I hope you have the magic key. Like that's why I hired you. That's what you're here for." That's the actress Michelle Williams, star of films like Manchester by the Sea, Blue Valentine, and Wendy and Lucy. If you haven't heard of those, let's go back to the '90s to when she first started out. You remember this, right? You know, a certain angst-filled drama full of self-aware teenagers. I mean, Dawson was probably the first decent guy you've ever even gone out with, and look what you did. You drove him right into the arms of a prostitute. Joey, you took that one way too far. You want to know the truth? You want to, because the truth is, ever since Dawson and I broke up, you have been scared to death. Oh, please. You're listening to the BFI podcast. I'm Isabel Stevens, and I work at the BFI's film magazine, Sight and Sound. The subject of our podcast today is actor-director teams, the best of which, for my money, is Michelle Williams and director Kelly Reichardt. During the London Film Festival, I talked to Williams about her career. Now, there are a ton of reasons why I think she's great. She's really choosy, and she clearly follows her passions. Most savvy, serious actors do big blockbuster films and then do their small passion projects on the side. I never really understood that mentality. I, I, I get it. It's just... Not necessarily for me. The truth is, it's like if I don't love something, I can't do it. I can't, I won't be good in it, be miserable. If I like go against the grain of my soul, I can't, I can't fake it. She's pretty selective about the films that she works on. And she mostly picks films by interesting and often independent directors. The first time that you read something is maybe the most important time that you read something. I know it's going to be something I really carve out a lot of time to be able to sit with it and not just sort of rush through it. I really like to read scripts in the bath. It's like my like little like office and I have um, like a little pile next to my bath. What would you do if you're 20 and you've just played a blonde siren next door like Jen Lindley in Dawson's Creek, one of the most popular teen shows ever. You might be looking to Hollywood, right? What Williams did was dye her hair brown and star in a British film, Me Without You, working with director Sandra Goldbacker. 
It's a film about an intense, obsessive friendship between two teenage girls. It was always the two of us, Marina and me, best friends forever. You should dye your hair, Holly. You look like a virgin. I am a virgin. Since then, Williams has worked with some of the best directors around. Ang Lee on Brokeback Mountain, Martin Scorsese on Shutter Island, Charlie Kaufman on Synecdoche, New York, Sarah Polly on Take This Waltz. The director Williams has collaborated with the most, though, is Kelly Reichardt. Like most of the directors Williams works with, Reichardt's an independent filmmaker. She's one of the best American directors working now. They've made three films together. They met through a mutual acquaintance, Todd Haynes, who Michelle had worked with on I'm Not There, Haynes' film about Bob Dylan. They first started working together on Reichardt's third film, Wendy and Lucy, back in 2007. Wendy and Lucy is a film about a woman trying to get by when life is stacked against her. It hinges on Williams' performance. She's in every scene. We see her daily rituals, sleeping in her car, counting her last dollars, going to wash in the toilets of a petrol station. Not a lot of jobs around here, huh? (laughs) I'll say. I don't know what the people do all day. It's a cliche to say that performance is restrained or understated, but that's exactly what Williams is in the film. Can't get a job without an address anyway. (laughs) Or a phone. You can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. It's all fixed. That's why I'm going to Alaska. Here they need people. There are no histrionics. Her character and her fears are revealed in her movements and gestures, the pauses in her speech, the way she looks at people testily. We really feel like we've burrowed into her character. In her second film with Reichardt, Meek's Cut-Off from 2011, Williams plays another resilient and stoical woman. In a way, it's another stalled road movie, based on the diaries of women pioneers, which Reichardt and her scriptwriter John Raymond found. Meek's Cut-Off is a western that tells the story of a group of families travelling west on the Oregon Trail in 1845, but they're lost and they're running out of water. Michelle Williams plays Emily Tetherow, one of the wives who is expected to just obey the decisions of her husband and the other men in the group. But she has ideas of her own. Here she is, becoming increasingly sceptical of their guide, Meek. Sometimes I get the sense you don't care for me much, Miss Tedero. Oh, I have no feelings one way or the other, Mr. Meek. Yeah, that, that, that's just a kind way of saying you don't like me. I don't like where we are. So that's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. Reichardt's latest film, Certain Women, also stars Williams. It's an adaptation of three stories by Miley Melloy. And out of those, Reichardt has crafted a loosely linked triptych about four women living in Montana. Michelle Williams' character, Gina, has a strained relationship with her husband and teenage daughter in the film. She's also pretty calculating. She's trying to get some sandstone off their neighbour in order for her to build the perfect house. The house that she sees will fix all of her domestic problems. Don't know why you indulge her. I was just talking to her. We did tell her that we weren't going to keep her out here all day. God, she really can't help it. What? Making me the bad guy. As Reichardt works with small, tight budgets, her casting decisions are really crucial. 
She needs actors who are going to be able to work the way she works. And so working regularly with the same actors makes sense. Now, not every film Rikar has made has starred Williams or even focused on female characters. But it's interesting that all her films with Williams are complex studies of women. Theirs is a rare, ongoing female director-actor team. Something that's so important is to know is to know your director's... to know what they like, to know like what kind of world they're creating so that you can be a, like the best inhabitant of it. I feel like it took... I, I really worked to understand what that is for Kelly, what that means to her. Um, and now I just trust her so much, and she knows me so well um, that we can... She just has to sort of look at me, and I know what she means. It's interesting at this point to think about other long-standing director-actor collaborations. But when we think about director-actor teams, who do we think about? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Martin Scorsese said that this famous scene from Taxi Driver only came about because Robert De Niro was improvising on set. It was their close, collaborative and creative relationship that made one of the most acclaimed scenes in cinema happen. De Niro has made eight films with Scorsese and they'll soon work together again on the gangster movie The Irishman. But what about female director-actor teams? There must be more out there, right? You guessed it. On the internet, the list of dudes working with other dudes is really long. When women are involved, it's often a male director, female actor dynamic. Somewhere, somehow, there must be some female director-actor teams making cinema magic. Let's go back to the early years of cinema, to the start of the 20th century, when motion picture companies were springing up in a place called Hollywood. Hollywood became very quickly a magnet for creative women because Hollywood was not, filmmaking was not... Uh, accepted as a real business or a real profession. That's the film historian and writer Carrie Beauchamp. Ergo, uh, women and Jews were welcome, and they were really the backbone of what would become the early film industry. Women flourished as directors and, and writers and, of course, actresses and uh, editors in all roles. Those women took care of each other, they learned from each other, and uh, they really respected each other. Within that group of incredible women, and there were dozens and dozens of them, were Frances Marion and Mary Pickford. Frances Marion was one of the most prolific and famous screenwriters of the 20th century. She's the only woman to have won two Oscars for original screenplays. Mary Pickford was one of the most popular actresses of her day, and she would go on to be one of the most powerful figures in Hollywood. But back when the two women first met, that wasn't the case. Mary was established, but she did not have control over her own career. She was by then signed with Jesse Lasky and um, was making the movie she was told to make. With Frances and Mary together, with Frances, Mary, and writing Mary's films, they took more control over the characters that Mary could portray. Frances wrote maybe four or five films before they created together, really, the film of Poor Little Rich Girl. 
Mary plays an 11-year-old girl, left her own devices by her rich, uncaring parents. She and Marion worked in as many gags as they could. There's even a mud fight. Studio officials, though, did not like poor little rich girl. But the public and the critics did. With the success of a poor little rich girl, Mary is allowed to set herself new contract terms. And Jessie Lasky has to agree that she can now pick her own director. She can pick her own writer. Choosing, of course, Frances Marion as her exclusive writer. And Mickey Nealon as a director who's um, the same age. The three of them are all in their middle to late 20s, if you can believe that. And making some of the most um, profitable films and um, expensive films to make that Hollywood is making at the time. Uh, so they were the, they were the kids in the candy store for a while, and they came out with films, um, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, A Little Princess, and Stella Maris, where Mary gets to play two different roles. And uh, Amerly of Clothesline Alley, Melissa, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, the films that uh, Francis and Mary uh, created together. Francis was the highest paid screenwriter, male or female, from 1915 to 1935. That's 20 years. If we're looking for somebody today who combines art and clout in the way that Frances Marion and Mary Pickford did, it would be a TV showrunner like Shonda Rhimes. And while Shonda Rhimes is a producer and writer, she's also a formidable businesswoman who has her own production company, Shondaland, just like Mary Pickford did. She founded the Mary Pickford Film Corporation in 1916 when she was just 24. So far, the partnerships we've looked at have been professional working relationships. But they've also been quite nice and friendly. But there can be a dark side to the close creative relationship, such as that between French director Catherine Breyer and actress Roxanne Mesquida. Breyer is a director who has made a career really about of investigating adolescent female sexuality. That's critic Catherine Wheatley. From the beginning of her work, she starts with a series of young women who stand in as kind of um, substitutes for her, in effect. There's a sense in which all of her work's really autobiographical. And what's interesting about Mesquida is that she settles on her for three films. She doesn't do this with any of the rest of her actresses. Mesquida herself was discovered when she was quite young, only 11. And she was in a couple of films um, before she worked with Brea, but Brea is the director director that she credits with having really discovered her and taught her how to act and learn her craft. And she started off in a film that was called Amasseur. It's really badly translated into English as Fat Girl, um, but it, it would translate better as something like To My Sister, and it's about a pair of um, teenage sisters who go on holiday with their parents, and there's a really excruciating scene around the midpoint of the film in which the older sister, played by Mesquita, loses her virginity to um, a young guy who she's met at this holiday village. Um, he seduces her, but it's quite coercive. One has the sense that perhaps what we've watched isn't entirely co consensual, and it's a very uncomfortable scene to watch, in fact. Um, and then what I find really fascinating about the partnership is the second film that they made together is kind of a reflection on the filming of that scene. That film is Sex's Comedy, made in 2003, just two years after Amasseur. It's a film about filmmaking, and it's interesting because it's a film about filmmaking 
starring a female director. The director is trying to get her two leads, who don't like each other, to film a sex scene. Roxanne Mosquito reprises her role as that young woman, um, but actually is playing herself, so she's known only as the actress within that film. And there's a way in which Breyer actually comes to stand in for the young man. The, the relationship between them seems really quite problematic. There's a sense in which if you actually map the seduction scene from Emma Sir onto the seduction scene in Sex's Comedy, she comes to stand in, she repeats the gestures that we see the male actor doing in the earlier film. So one has a real sense of her power, actually, that she's absolutely at the centre of this and everyone is doing her bidding. And she seems to be absolutely in control of things at all times. It's a really, really kind of nuanced performance of, and, and depiction of what a female director might be like. Mesquita and Breyer go on to make one more film together. They had an intense partnership, but suddenly that stops. Mosquito was 18 when she starred in Amasa, and in fact that's something that comes up within Sex is Comedy when they're reflecting on it, um, because she is past the age of consent. That's a phrase that the director actually articulates within the film, and yet her mum is still calling up and saying, I'm not sure about her doing these scenes, she shouldn't go in the water for too long. And so you have the sense that she's, she's not quite responsible for herself. And I suspect that probably what happened is that in 2006 she was in her mid-twenties and then perhaps Mesquita outgrew Brea or was you no know, longer the kind of actress that she really felt fitted the parts that she was writing for her. Why would you want to work with the same director or actor over and over again? It's not for everyone. I suspect that some female directors might have been worried in the past that their films would be seen as too similar if they kept casting the same actors in them. For American director Nicole Holofsener, though, that hasn't been a problem. She's worked with actress Catherine Keener since her debut feature, Walking and Talking, in 1996. When she made that, Keener was in her 30s, and as she's got older, Nicole Holofsener hasn't stopped working with her. She's just made films that are about older women. They've made five films together, which amounts to the most prolific all-female director-actor partnership in American cinema. While there may not be that many enduring female director-actor teams in cinema history, today more and more female directors, producers, actors are forging their own creative partnerships. Will Shonda Rhimes and Viola Davis, for example, re-team after the success of How to Get Away with Murder? I hope so. Later this year, we'll see Sofia Coppola's next collaboration with Kirsten Dunst and her second with Elle Fanning, The Beguiled. Looking to the future, there's a lot to get excited about. There are more and more partnerships between female actors and directors in Hollywood, which enables them to have more power and control behind the scenes and over their own careers. There are practical reasons why more and more women are working together. Actors get more interesting parts that are written with them in mind. Directors find it easier to get financing if they have a star attached to a role. And they have an easier working relationship if it's somebody who they just know how to work with. But most of all, it's about two creative people bringing out the best in each other, making great films together. If you're interested in reading more about Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women, check out the March issue of Sight and Sound, where Sophie Mayer has talked to Kelly Reichardt. Also, in the February issue of Sight and Sound, there's a longer version of my interview with Michelle Williams. Don't forget to check out Carrie Beauchamp's book, Without Lying Down, which is about Francis Marion and Mary Pickford. 
Hi all, BFI podcast producer Henry Barnes here down in the depths of the BFI screening rooms. This episode of the BFI podcast was written and presented by Isabel Stevens. You can find her on Twitter at isstevens. It was edited and produced by me, Henry Barnes. I'm Henry H. Barnes on Twitter. And it's got additional production by Peter Sale. His website is petersale.co.uk. Our theme music is a track called Throwback Jack, written by Tim Garland and licensed through Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.